0: All right. before we get into the Scripture, let's pray and ask for God's continued blessing on our service and continued guidance through His Word. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we come to You in the name of Your Son, Jesus, Lord. At this time, we stop to pause to consider Your holy work, the revelation of Your mind given to us, Your thoughts, Your intentions, Your motives your character, all revealed to us through your word, Father. We pray that as we examine this bit of text in front of us, Father, that you would allow us to see, Lord God, the life that you call us to live and why you call us to live that life, Lord God. That your gospel, which you've allowed us to receive, is not merely for salvation, but for sanctification. That you have called us out of this world as your own special people, zealous for good works. Help us to understand your word, Lord God. I pray that you would allow me, first of all, to receive the teachings of it, and that you would set me aside, and that you would be heard from today, that you would be glorified, your people edified, and those you desire to save would be saved, Father. Thank you, Lord God, for your word, and we just pray for your blessing over it now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start by, I'm going to read the the set of scripture that we're going to stay in, and then we're going to flip around, but I want to, so we're going to read that, and then I'm going to give a short introduction to the book of Titus, and then we'll get to that set of scripture, all right? So, it says here, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Alright, so, this book of Titus was an epistle written from the Apostle Paul to Titus, right? Who was Titus? Titus is described in the first chapter as one of Paul's true sons in the faith. I say one of them because that was also a description Paul gave of Timothy, right? So he's writing this letter to his true son in the faith. That probably evidences the fact that Paul was the one who led Timothy to salvation, and, I mean, Titus to salvation, and that Titus was a direct result of God using Paul to bring the gospel to Titus and Paul discipled Titus and then we get this letter, right? So Paul also had a missionary companion when he went through his missionary trips, right? One of them being Titus. Titus one of, was one of Paul's missionary companions and you could see that in Acts 15 too. Titus was also... Paul's emissary to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6 through 7 and verses 13 through 14, we see that Paul was encouraged by Titus at the hearing of the faith of the Corinthians. Then we see in the book of Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that Paul actually handed over to, to Titus the second letter of Corinthians and he was the one who brought that letter to the Corinthians. And it points out in that book that Paul didn't need to twist Titus' arm to go on this trip. Titus was willing to serve God in this capacity. He wanted, he longed to go be with the Corinthians to impart some sort of grace to them and to take this letter with him, to them. That brings us to this book, this letter. Because eventually, Paul left Titus in Crete. And why did he leave him in Crete? That's what this letter starts off to say. So in chapter 1, we read that Paul left Titus in Crete in order to establish godly, qualified elders in the churches that were existing in every city in the island of Crete. That was the purpose for which he wrote this letter. So right in the first chapter, we see that Paul's apostleship is confirmed. The recipient of the letter is addressed being Titus, the true son in the faith. The purpose of the letter, which was to appoint elders in all of the cities. And when he does that, I just want to point this out, that two times when talking about qualifications of elders, that Paul mentions that they need to be above reproach. We're going to come back to that term. Because that's essentially what we're talking about in Titus 2, 11 through 14. Christians who by God's grace live above reproach. They don't bring reproach upon the gospel. Then he goes on from telling him he, he goes on from telling him he needs to establish qualified elders in Crete to telling him why. Because false teachers had arisen in Crete, in the churches that existed in Crete. These false teachers were bringing forth Jewish fables and commandments of men. The teachers themselves and those that followed those false teachers, for chapter 1 tells us at the end right there in verse 16, they are disqualified for every good work. We're going to come back to that too. So then we're going to just briefly talk about chapter 2 now. Chapter 2 is where Paul tells, Timothy, tells Titus to speak things which are proper for sound doctrine. What follows is this whole list of what's proper for sound doctrine. And I'm just going to read this. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. This is com- in complete contrary to the teachings of those false teachers. The false teachers were teaching things that were causing the the believers in Crete to be disqualified for every good work. What we're going to see here now, these things that Paul calls calls Titus to teach, the things that are proper for sound doctrine, they actually enable us to perform good works. That is in direct conflict with the ministry of the false teachers. That's one of the ways that we can identify false teachers, right? They're disqualified for every good work. You hear what they say, then you look at how they live, and you notice that what they're saying isn't true. It's not right, because it's void of any power. At the end of chapter 1, it says, they, being the false teachers, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. That, those, the result of those, the the false teachers, right? The end of the false teachers being disqualified for every good work, that extends to those who profess to be believers and who might be believers, but give themselves to the teaching of false teachers. That's why we have to be sure, we have to be on guard what we're listening to, who we're listening to, what they're saying. Because the things that we absorb into our minds, they actually have an effect on how we live. And as we read through this, we're going to see that the doctrine of God is twofold. It's not just salvific. That means it's not just for salvation. It's for sanctification. That is the gospel. That is the doctrine of God. And that is God's purposes from before eternity began. And we're going to see that as we continue. So he tells Titus to preach things which are good for sound doctrine. That the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise. That they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That's essentially living above reproach. We're going to keep reading now, because he reaches, he hits... Throughout this, this, the things that are proper for sound doctrine, what Paul does is he reaches three conclusions. That's the first one, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So remember that. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, and all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. This is the second conclusion here. That the one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they, those bondservants, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That's the third conclusion. So now here in verses 11 through 14, what we see is Paul expounding upon those three conclusions. This word for links what Paul teaches in uh, verses 12 through 14 to the false teachers in chapter 1 who are disqualified for every good works and those three conclusions. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. That an that an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior in all things. So now we're going to get into this text here, right? But first we need to ask ourselves something. What is the doctrine of God, our savior? What is that doctrine? That doctrine is His promise of salvation that existed before time began. So we're going to just briefly look at this this phrase, this statement. The doctrine of God. So let's just briefly, we're going to just survey some Old Testament verses that talk about that doctrine. It just didn't pop up out of nowhere, right? God's promise to all man since eternity has begun, since before, since in eternity past has been that he promised this grace. And we're going to see that. So let's, let's just flip around scripture a little bit now. Genesis 12, chapter 3. Genesis 12, verse 3. He's, I'm going to be flipping through a bunch of verses here. So if you don't want to follow along through your Bible, that's Okay. So he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was God's promise to Abraham. All the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How did that come about? Through Jesus Christ. That's how that came about, right? Abraham's immediate descendants, we know, were the Jews. And they they held to that claim, right? We have Abraham as our father, they said to Jesus. Jesus said to them, I could raise up sons of Abraham from these rocks. The point here being that God's the, the doctrine of God since Genesis has been that he's going to bring out of this world this his own special people. That through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed, and that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Yeah. Zechariah verses nine, chapter nine, verse nine says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jer- Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you." He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So, what we see here is that this promise was immediately made to Israel. Right? One of the promises, the coming Messiah was for all people, as the text says in Titus, But immediately it was for Israel. It was for those of his fold. Now, what do we know? Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. And we see we're going to see it through these other scriptures that we're going to turn to that. The big picture is that from eternity past, God had it in his mind to redeem his own special people, not just from Israel, But from the whole world, including us, including Gentiles. So now turn to Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 through 34. Here God says, emphasizing the new covenant, that Jesus said, that he would give on the cross, right? The new covenant, which is in in his blood. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. So, the first covenant God gave with Israel was the Mosaic Covenant. That was a covenant of works. God said, if you do this, then I will be your God. If you do this, then I will be your treasure. That's no longer the covenant. The new covenant has been sealed in Christ's blood. And what God now does that we're going to see when we turn back to Titus is he writes his law in our minds and His statutes on our hearts, so that we can be intimately taught by Him. Now we're going to turn to Isaiah 9. Now these verses are going to highlight that this promise of salvation, this doctrine of God, isn't merely for Israel. It's for all peoples. So, Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 say, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. This is the doctrine of God. This is speaking to, when when Isaiah here says, Zebulun and Naphtali, those were Gentile cities. Those were Gentile lands. God here is promising that he's going to send this great light to these Gentile peoples and that they would receive this light, for this light shines upon them. Then over in chapter 11, verse 10, Isaiah says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this doctrine of God, it seems to be evidencing the Gospel. It's pointing us towards the Gospel. What is the doctrine of God? The doctrine of God is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So now I'm going to turn over to Isaiah 42. 42.6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will uphold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. A light to the the Gentiles. This is what Titus says. This is what Paul says to Titus. The grace of God, bringing salvation, has appeared to all people. Isaiah forty nine seven. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, Jesus, their Holy One. To him whom man despises, to him whom the nations abhor, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Again, the idea here is that this doctrine of God is referencing the gospel. That is the doctrine of God. You can't. We can't escape it. From Genesis to Revelation, the purpose of the books is to direct us to Christ. To direct us to the knowledge of our sinfulness and our inability to be pleasing to God. And that the only hope of salvation we have is found in Christ. That is God's doctrine. Romans 1, 16 says... want to read it so I don't paraphrase it. for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also for the Greek. It's for all peoples, all peoples. Ephesians 2 1 through 9 and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once, being, once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, this is this is God's doctrine here. This is the teaching of God. This is it. He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. In his kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. And then one more. We're going to flip over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, 28-29. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The first text I read said that God would bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham. Now we see here Paul writing to the Galatians saying that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. It's not enough to just be a descendant of Abraham. A physical descendant of Abraham does not enter heaven. The spiritual descendants of Abraham enter heaven. Those who have similar faith as Abraham, who hear God's word, God's promises, and believe God's promises, and so are counted or accredited with righteousness. That's exactly what happens through the gospel. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we're trusting in God's promises that he will forgive us of our sin, that he will redeem us from our sins, and that he will grant us entrance into heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's those, the people who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is those people who are Abraham's seed. Turn back over to Titus now. Titus 2. So, like I said, Titus 2, 11 through 14, these verses are Paul's, these verses are Paul expounding upon those three conclusions. That the word of God may not be blasphemed, that opponents may not have anything evil to say, ultimately, that we might adorn the gospel or the doctrine of God doctrine of God, that phrase doctrine of God, is synonymous with gospel. The doctrine of God is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are synonymous with one another. So what's Paul saying here? He's telling us that we, as Christians, are to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now wait a minute. You telling me I gotta do something here? Cause that sounds like I need to do something. Yes, Christians are called to do things. Isn't that amazing? It's like a revolutionary thought. Paul says here when he taught, when he brings up this statement, "Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things." He's talking about the the. Immediate context, he's talking about how slaves, how bond servants were to live in his culture, in that society during that time. And what he says is that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Seems like we have responsibility on our part, doesn't it? We as Christians are to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. This word adorn in Greek, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It means cosmetic. So the word in Greek means cosmetic. So what, 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 does, what does that make you think of, ladies? Makes you think of makeup, right? Women put makeup on to make themselves more attractive, more beautiful, better to look at, all of these things. In Christ, we are to adorn the gospel in the same way. What would be more honoring to God? A woman who puts on lipstick to make herself more attractive or the woman who can bridle her tongue? Which is, which, which, what is God talking about here? He's not talking about physical cosmetics. He's talking about spiritual. Our lives should be attractive to the world. The gospel, are, are, so as Christians, we are going to dress up the gospel, right? It's either going to be dressed up in a three piece tuxedo like my father in law? <laughs> or it's going to be in rags. And that all depends on what we do, how we live, what we think. How are we presenting the gospel to the world with our lives? That's what Paul's getting at here. Ultimately, our lives ought to be reflective, right? Reflective of what? Reflective of who? Of the world? Of course not. Reflective of Jesus Christ, our Savior. If we long to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we ought to long to live our lives like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That when people look at us, they don't see us. They see our Savior Jesus Christ. The chief end of the Christian is to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. This sounds like a word we're all familiar with, right? Our testimony. So, again, we're just going to jump around some scriptures again. So I'm going to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 33 through 34. Paul says here to the Corinthians, right? And and we're studying through Corinthians on Thursday nights and we know that the church of Corinth was a church. They were believers. Paul addresses them as believers. Even though there was this chaos going on in their services. This past, we're going to touch on it a little bit. But this past Thursday night, Pastor Lou started to go through 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that talks about this gross sexual immorality that was going on in the life of that church. So, here in chapter 15, this is what Paul says to these Corinthians. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness. Righteousness. And do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And then he says, I speak this to your shame, because the church at Corinth wasn't doing that. The lives that they were living looked like that of the world, and in certain instances, even worse than the world. Paul says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians that sexual immorality is happening in the church that's not even named in the world. So this church in Corinth had so fallen away from this doctrine, this God's doctrine, adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their habits, that their character, that the things they do and said and thought were no longer reflective of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but of this lost and dying world. And Paul says, I speak this to your shame because... How can you go out evangelizing? How can you go out witnessing to people? How could you go out sharing the gospel or inviting people in to the church to hear God's word when you're walking in unrighteousness, when you're filled with sin, when you look just like they do? You understand? He says, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. How we live affects... Now, I know God's sovereign and he's going to save whoever he wants to save, but he uses us as he does that. Or else this wouldn't be here. (laughs) Why else would God write, have Paul write down, awake to righteousness and do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of God. What he's implying is that if we awake to righteousness and no longer walk in sin, those who do not have the knowledge of God, huh? they might be curious. They might be interested in this gospel we're preaching. If we're preaching the gospel, and our lives look exactly like theirs, there's no attraction. There's nothing to be drawn in by. Why would I be a part of that when I already have that? That's what I do already. We're going to turn now to Romans, chapter 13, verse 8. Verse 8 says, and I'm going to read from verse 8 to 14. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, all those things he just said, do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Why? Because our salvation is nearer today than it was yesterday. And what do we believe we're saved from? We believe we're saved from God's holy and just wrath that is owed to us in hell for eternity because of our sin. That salvation is nearer today than it was yesterday. And if we believe that that's what we're saved from, then we should awake to righteousness, no longer be asleep, no longer walking in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and all of these strife and envy because there are those who do not have the knowledge of God. Understand? If we believe we're going to be delivered from our sinfulness because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, then we need, our lives need to look like that so that other people might receive that same salvation. The heart of the Christian ought to be one full of love for God and compassion for man, and that should drive us to live, that should drive our lives to look like something. So we are to adorn the gospel of Christ with Christ-like characteristics, right? Owe no one anything except to love one another. Love. That's the fulfillment of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Whose love do we long to reflect? The love of Jesus Christ. So we are to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ by loving like Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. We're going to read a little bit here. We're going to go into chapter 5. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. This is Ephesians 4:31. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Therefore, be imitators as God, of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us and offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the, you are light in the Lord. We were once part of that. We were once darkness, but now in Jesus Christ, we are the light of the Lord. What's the light of the Lord supposed to do? It's supposed to shine. How's God's light supposed to shine when our lives are crushed and just consumed with unrighteousness and sin? If our lives look like darkness, then the light cannot shine forth through us. Walk, walk, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. We're still in the same context here talking about what? For you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the Lord. You are light in the Lord. So he goes on to say here, but in all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead. And Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly. Carefully. Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another in the fear of God. Why do we do all those things? Because we are light in the Lord. In order for the light to have an effect on those who are still stuck in darkness, the light needs to be light. (laughs) The light cannot be darkness because then it's not going to expose anything. Jesus said something about this. So let's turn to John chapter 3. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said in John chapter 3 and verse 19 through 21. He says, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. Himself, right now, right? He's referring to himself as that light. Over in Ephesians now, we understand that we are partakers of that light, and Jesus Christ is actually radiating, he desires to radiate that light through us. So what's Jesus saying here? He says, That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be what? Exposed. The same thing Paul is talking about to the Ephesians when he's talking about how they live the lives of Christians walking in the light should expose the unfruitful darkness of the lost. That's one of our callings. One of the callings of Christians is to maintain that light. As individuals, as a body of believers, we are to shine forth the light of the gospel through how we live that people might be convicted and come to the knowledge of God. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. One of the biggest stumbling blocks for men is they don't, we don't, let's be honest, want our deeds to be called evil. Really, because we love our deeds. We love the depravity that we once walked in. Us, we've been delivered from that. Our love should no longer be that which is depraved, but that which is holy. And when our love is consumed by that which is holy, our lives will be consumed with the light of the gospel and will thus expose the unfruitfulness of the darkness that consumes those who do not know God. So Jesus says, but he who does the truth comes to the light. What is that? That is receiving the gospel. He who does the truth is the person who recognizes that, God, I'm a sinner. All I've ever done and all I've ever known is sin. I understand now that before you, my deeds are evil. I understand now that before you, I could do nothing to enter into heaven, nothing in my own accord to please you. And then they turn, right? They turn to Jesus Christ. This is those whose deeds are clearly seen that they have been done in God. God teaches us at that moment we believe. What does he teach us? He teaches us that we're sinners. He teaches us that we're unrighteous. He teaches us that we're worthy of one thing, and that is condemnation in hell for eternity. But thank God that he doesn't stop teaching us there. He teaches us that he sent his son. He teaches us that Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life, never sinning, defeating, fully, fully fulfilling the law in all points necessary that we could never do. He teaches us that He lived out this perfectly righteous life and that He took that perfectly righteous life and laid it down for us. He teaches us that on the cross, Jesus actually became my sin. He teaches us that on that cross, Jesus became your sin. He teaches us that you no longer have to pay the penalty for your sin because Jesus already paid it for you. And then he teaches us that just as Jesus defeated sin and death, so that victory will be appropriated in the life of all who trust and believe on Jesus. What what exposes the darkness so that God can teach us those things? Light. Our testimony. The things we do. The things we say. How we act. Now, it's not only, we'll get back to that thought, hold on. So, in First Peter, I want to talk, we're going to go over to First Peter now and just hammer this home. First Peter, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Why? Why? Why should we abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul? Because we ought to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Our testimonies have an impact upon those who do not know God. Do we want to adorn the gospel of grace? Do we want to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we want to adorn the doctrine of God? Or do we want to blaspheme it? Do we want to bring reproach upon it? because we're doing one or the other. That's the point. So, we've talked about adorning the gospel of God, right? Now, briefly, we're going to talk about the antithesis of that. The opposite, which is blaspheming the word of God. Which, clearly, Paul is saying, if a believer is not adorning the gospel of God... He's blaspheming it. So let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to read it, and then we'll just talk about it a little bit. This is the... This is contrary, right? This is contrary to adorning the gospel of God, to adorning the doctrine of God. He says, therefore, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For this is the warning. This is why we need to be in fellowship with God through His Word and through prayer and through the breaking of bread and through the... uh, All the points of the Apostles' Doctrine. This is why we need fellowship. This is why we need God's Word. This is why we need to be praying. This is why we need to be active with our faith. Because it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in rain, now these next two verses are um, an example, right? A a practical example of verses four through six. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars... It is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, this is what we're talking about here. Things that accompany salvation though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faithful and patience inherit the promises. So, there's a couple different interpretations of Hebrews chapter 6. There's one that is completely false and it is completely false and unbiblical and can't be found to be corroborated in any scripture and that is that people that the author here's talking about believers losing salvation. That's clearly not what he's talking about. He doesn't even mention the word salvation once. He mentions the word repentance. So, forgetting about that interpretation, there's two viable interpretations. He's either, he's either talking about tares, right? Like Jesus referred to when he talked about the wheat and the tares. Don't separate the tares lest you disturb the wheat. I'll take care of them in the end. He's either talking about tares, people who are sitting in the midst of God's word, who are sitting underneath God's word, and never come to that full saving faith. I don't even think that's that that that's not the interpretation that I believe is being discussed here. I think the author is talking about believers, but not that they lose salvation but that they become fruitless and suffer loss in eternity when standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Why do I think that? Because down at the bottom it says in verse 8, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near being cursed, whose end is to be burned. That sounds like something we just that sounds like a description of something Pastor Lou just read. An example, if you will, of a believer whose life was so immersed in sin that they became unfruitful, and Paul did what? Kick him out of the church for the destruction of his flesh, but that his soul might be saved. I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read about a believer. How do we know he was a believer? Paul says, so that his soul might be saved at the day of Jesus Christ. That person who had a sexually immoral relationship with his father's wife was a believer. But he had failed to walk in holiness. And what did he become? He became a mark of unholiness on the church. The church is meant to be pure. We are the body of Christ. We ought to reflect that in the things we do. So this author here in Hebrews is warning us to persevere in the faith to continue on to the end, so that when we get to heaven, we could cast all of the crowns we receive at our Lord's feet. Think about it for a second. You're standing... A scenario. You lived out your life serving the Lord, walking faithfully with the Lord for 30 years. Then you live out the rest of the course of your life not serving the Lord. You were a fruitful Christian for 30 years and now you're unfruitful for the remaining years. Does that mean you're not saved? No, I don't think so. Only God can judge a person's heart. Some will propose 30-fold, some 60, some 90. We all are saved, though. Every single one of those people. Each of us who are saved in Christ will produce varying degrees of fruit, right? Now, we will give an account for the life we lived and we will stand before the bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, to give an account for the things we did in this body. When you read about that, Scripture says, You will suffer loss. We will suffer loss. What is the loss suffered? It's not salvation. We're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. That means we're guaranteed entrance into heaven. The loss suffered is, I think, you had an opportunity to glorify God on earth. You had an opportunity to walk in one of his works, which he prepared beforehand for you to walk in. And yet you fail and you don't complete those works. You don't walk in those things. And now you're standing before your Savior who died for you to redeem you, to purify you, to make you his own special people, zealous for good works, and you failed him. What's that going to feel like? there's going to be loss suffered because we're going to be standing before our God and Savior and we're going to recognize that we failed him. That's why it's important that we adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of God. Now I'm going to go back to Titus. With my remaining time, I'm going to go through verses 11 through 14. Which isn't much time, so let's do that. All right. So, four. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Stop. It's a fan- that's an that's a interesting way to put it. The grace of God has appeared. Was it hidden? Yes, it was hidden. It was a mystery. This verse here is talking about salvation. Salvation, as we discussed before, when we were talking about that doctrine of God, that goes out for all peoples. So, I'm going to turn over to 2 Timothy. Well, first, right in chapter 1 of Titus, we see this. It says, in chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, promised before time began. This grace that has been made manifest, that has suddenly appeared, was in existence when? Before time began. Before time began, God had the manifestation of this grace on his mind. Another verse that tells us that. Timothy chapter 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 Paul says to Timothy here he says 2nd Timothy I'm sorry verse 1 chapter 1 verse 9 he says therefore I'm just going to read from verse 8 therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of Me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In eternity past? This is this is amazing. <laughs> this is mind-blowing. In eternity past, before anything existed, before there was anything created, God had this grace in his mind. And it appeared. It eventually appeared. How did it appear? It appeared through Jesus Christ, right? Moses gave us the law, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The manifestation of God's grace is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was promised, and Scripture tells us was crucified before anything was. It was on God. You were on God's mind before anything existed. Now, this offer goes out to all men. It is available to all men. It is extended to all people. But it is only effective in those whom have believed. It is only effective in the life of God's elect, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has called out, those whom he has known from eternity past. Go back over to Titus here. Now, God. Now, Paul transitions. He transitions from this grace of God that brings salvation, that has appeared to all men, not to the, not to the conclusion we would probably reach, right? If we're talking about salvation appearing to all men, we might then go on to talk about forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption and justification. But that's not Paul's point. What's the first word? Of verse 11? Four. That's linking what he's saying with what he previously said, which is that they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That adorning is only effective and active, that grace is only effective and active in the life of us. So now he transitions teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Who's us? Us are those who are eagerly waiting and looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord, save Jesus Christ. That's who us are. If that's you, what should you do? You should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. How does grace teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts? Well, grace is a manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. So grace teaches us in that we look at Jesus Christ and how he lived and we long to reflect that in what we do. That's one way grace teaches us. How else does grace teach us? Well, flip over to First John. And now, well, let me tell you first John chapter 1 verse 9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness That's how grace teaches us. Grace teaches us in a manner that is experiential. God's grace is experienced in our lives every time we sin and we confess that sin and he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That experience is not singular. No. That experience is, in the life of a believer, multiplied over and over and over and over and over again. And that experience of God's grace ought to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts when we're faced with the same temptation that we once fell into, would it not be beneficial to call to mind the grace God gave you when you walked in that temptation and it became sin and He forgave you of it and cleansed you of it? God's grace isn't some lofty thought that can't be attained or experienced in this life. He longs for us to experience His grace. Yes. And we experience His grace by denying ungodliness and worldly lusts that we might live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Amen. Another manifestation of His grace is that we're continually looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes because he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So, the doctrine of God is twofold. It's salvation, but it's also sanctification. What do I mean? Well, Jesus didn't merely die to save us, to allow us entrance into heaven. That's not what this text says. It says that he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're dead to sin. Sin no longer ought to reign and rule in our lives. Right. Because he died for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Why then shall we walk any longer in it? He died to pull us out of that. To redeem means to buy back, right? He gave himself that he might buy us out of every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Thank you. That's why Jesus Christ died. Thank you. He died to brought, bring us salvation. But not only salvation, he died to bring us sanctification. He died so that we might be zealous for good works. And this is in direct opposition to what what Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 1, right? The false teachers and those who followed them were disqualified for every good work. Do you, Christian, want to be disqualified for every good work, or do you, being God's own special people, zealous for good works, long to walk in good works? Now, it seems like there's, there's two thoughts here, right? Because the beginning of the text says that he sent the grace which brings salvation and has appeared to all men. This grace has appeared to all men, but it's only effectual in the life of a believer. So I just want to point this out for us. And 1 Timothy chapter 4, we see these two things reconciled that God gave His grace and made it available to all the world, but that it's only effective and active in those whom are His sheep. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 9 and 10 it says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. These things command and teach. What does that verse say? He is the Savior of all men. That is, if any man might recognize their sin, recognize their inability to please God and repent of that sin, they can be saved, right? That invitation, if you will, goes out to all men. If you're watching this and you have yet to come to Christ or a saving faith in Jesus Christ, this goes out to you. The only way God's grace can be effective in your life, though, is that you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that's what Paul goes on to say to Timothy. He says, Because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Back in Titus, he said it this way, right? Especially those who believe, he said to Timothy. and Titus, he says, his own special people. God's grace, God's active grace, God's effectual grace is only found in the life of believers. So, to just bring this to a close, we talked about those three conclusions that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. That an opponent, when he speaks evil of you, may be ashamed. That we might adorn the gospel of God our Savior. The doctrine of God our Savior. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw how we do that. We do that by practically experiencing God's grace in our lives. To close, I just want to read this quote from A.W. Tozer. Everything in the New Testament accords with this Old Testament picture, that is, the, the, the temple. What was, everything that happened in the temple was really symbolic of what would happen in Christ. Yeah. Ransom men need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies, Right? we know anything about the temple, there was the Holy of Holies and the high priest could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. Any other time somebody went into the, the Holy of Holies, struck dead. And what we read about in Leviticus is even that one day a year, they were terrified. <laughs> the, the high priest, they're, they're, traditionally speaking, they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he would die while being in God's presence. That was a fearful thing. Here Tozer says, ransom men no longer need to fear entering the Holy of holies." God wills that we should push on into His presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. It is more than a doctrine to be held it is a life to be enjoyed every moment, day by day. Thanks. All right, let's close in prayer. And then I think I went a little long, so we want to forego that last hymn? We a last hymn. Close in prayer. Okay, all right, let's close in prayer and then we'll dismiss and we'll say goodbye to everybody online. Our Father in heaven, Lord God, we thank you for your word. For the treasure trove of wealth that it is. That in your word we find your thoughts. We find what pleases you, what honors you. We find what you desire us to do. We find promises such as the ones we read today. That your grace is active in the life of the believer. Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It's our responsibility, Lord God, to take the grace you have given us in our Lord Jesus Christ and to grow that grace. To be filled with your Spirit that we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, that adorns your gospel, that makes it light to those who are still in darkness. Help us, Father, to appropriate these things in our lives that we would each be participants of this grace experiencing you and your holiness and your presence day by day and moment by moment thank you lord god for this time in your word lord in jesus holy name we pray amen